0: But uh, that being said, let's uh, turn our attention to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, and we'll read verses uh, 1 through 5. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel uh, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for your word. For when we are hungry, you feed us with it. You give us righteousness and you satisfy our hunger. You satisfy our thirst with the outpouring of your spirit. And so we pray, O Lord, that on this Lord's day, you would be faithful to your promises, that you would satisfy our hunger and thirst for righteousness that you would enable us to see the Lord Jesus Christ clearly in the pages of Holy Writ, that we would hear his voice, that we would not only hear, but that we would respond in obedience and in love, all to the praise of your glory. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. When Martin Luther nailed uh, the 95 Theses to the castle door at Wittenberg, we can say that he began the Reformation. And while it it, it took a number of years for Luther really to come to the mature uh, position that we would now identify as the Reformation understanding of the doctrine of justification, we could say that this is the chief point of conflict between uh, Protestants and Rome. How is it that we can stand in the presence of an all-holy God and have that holy God declare us righteous, not merely innocent of wrongdoing, but rather righteous? In other words, that he would look upon us and say that we have completely and totally uh, fulfilled every single jot and tittle of the law. It's an ominous thing when you think about it, in that, in other words, God says to us, I require absolute perfect obedience, and even the slightest infraction of my law renders you guilty. I suspect it would elicit the, the response of who then can stand in the presence of God? Who then can walk away with anything but a guilty verdict? and the ensuing wrath, judgment, and condemnation that would be rightly due unto us. Well, this is essentially what was at the core of the concerns for the Protestant reformers. The Protestant reformers said, we receive the blessing of salvation exclusively through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and God accomplishes this by imputing, by accrediting, The perfect obedience and suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ unto us. The Roman Catholic Church, on the other hand, said, No, it's a combination of God's mercy and grace plus our good works. Christ gets you started and you finish the work. What I want us to see this morning from Zechariah chapter 3 is the idea that the Protestant reformers were correct they had a correct reading of the scriptures and particularly of Genesis chapter 15, verse six. And as Paul explains Genesis chapter 15, verse six, when God promised Abraham that he would give him many heirs and it says, and Abraham believed God and he credited to him as righteousness. That as Paul explains that passage uh, in Romans chapter four and five, as well as throughout his epistles, It's the idea that God credits to us perfect law-keeping. He credits to us the perfect suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that to put it in other terms, that when God looks upon us, he doesn't look upon us as we are in and of ourselves, but rather he looks upon us as we are clothed in the robe of Christ's righteousness, so that when we stand in his presence, we have that brilliant robe of perfect righteousness, holiness, and suffering that was Christ that he freely gives uh, unto us. And so what I want us to recognize is the line from that famous hymn that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus's blood and righteousness. Righteousness. And so we want to see how this unfolds here. And what I can say is perhaps, at least for me, one of the most dramatic presentations, I think, of the gospel uh, that I see in the scriptures. That's not to say that there aren't others, but I find it to be one of the most dramatic. And so we'll look here in verses one through five. And first, what we want to understand is we want to understand the setting. And then, secondly, we want to understand the looming charge. That was hanging over Joshua's head. And then third and finally, we want to consider the gift that God gives unto Joshua. And indeed, unto all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and place their faith in him. So let's give thought first to the setting of Zechariah chapter 3. And that Zechariah prophesies here during a time... Uh, in Israel's Babylonian exile when they were given the instruction to return to the land. Cyrus, if you recall, issued a decree, and Israel's leaders returned to the land and began the rebuilding process. They began the process of rebuilding the temple. This meant that they had to restart the sacrifices, but it also meant that they had to reconstitute the priestly order. If they had been taken away into captivity, this meant that the sacrifices weren't being conducted and that there's a sense in which the Levitical line had been disrupted by the exile. The Levitical line had been disrupted. Without a high priest, Israel could not present the annual atonement that we read about, for example, in Leviticus chapter 16. And thus, this meant that Israel had no means by which to remove the defilement of sin. In other words, even though they were returning to the land, the prospects and the specter of exile for sin still looms large over their collective existence. If they have no high priest then they have no sacrifice. And if they have no sacrifice, then they still have the burden and the guilt of sin hanging over the nation, which means that God might once again cast them out of his presence. And so God gives unto uh, Zechariah the prophet this vision, this vision of Joshua the high priest, so that he gives them this vision to show him that there is a need, there is a need to reconstitute the, the, the high priest 's office there's a need to restart the sacrifices. But I want us to see what else is going on here is that there's a sense in which what this passage is, passage embodies is the idea that you can be ever so close. To the presence of God, and yet millions of miles away. Here they are in the land. They're ostensibly back in the presence of God, and yet there is still this void, this gap, this chasm that separates them from the benevolent love and mercy of God. Because there is no high priest, there is no sacrifice. This is the sense in which maybe some of us find ourselves at times within the church itself. We can be attending church. We can be around Christians. Perhaps maybe we can even be in serious prayer regularly, but we feel as if even though we are in some sense physically close to God's people and to his presence, we're still miles and miles away from him. Is there a remedy for this situation? Is there a remedy for the fact that though we may be in close proximity to God, that we may for a number of reasons nevertheless be separated from him by some great distance? This brings us to our second point, which is the charge. And that in this vision that God gives to Zechariah about reconstituting the priesthood, it begins with Joshua the high priest standing in the presence of the Lord. And it's an ominous scene for a number of reasons. Because first of all, we have Joshua the high priest and he's standing in God's presence. If it, if, if it isn't enough, we should undoubtedly go back, say for example, to uh, Moses' presence before God. When he was atop of Sinai, if you remember, the people were absolutely frightened and did not want to get near Mount Sinai because it was a dark and foreboding place. There were peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and dark clouds, and they said, you go up. And so Moses goes up, and as he is in the presence of God, he says, I want to see your glory. And He says, no man can see my glory and live. And so he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. And the the, the passage in Exodus tells us that as God passed by, Moses merely saw his hindquarters. And yet, here is Joshua, the high priest, standing in the very presence of God. But that's not all. In addition to standing in the presence of God, you have Satan. The liar, the murderer, the arch enemy and rival of God, standing in what is essentially not only the throne room, but what could constitute and constitutes the divine tribunal, the divine courtroom, where God sits upon his throne, and there is Satan. But what's important to note about Satan's presence is that we would perhaps automatically think of him as the devil, and there's certainly biblical precedent for that. But what's important for us to note is what Satan's name means. And it tells us this there when it says... And Satan, verse 1, standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan means accuser. Satan is the prosecuting attorney. So we're in the divine courtroom. We're in the holy presence of God before his throne. And at his right hand is Satan, the accuser. And then we read these terrifying words in verse 1. Now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord, and as the passage goes on to tell us, it says that he was clothed with filthy garments. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got a really horrible habit. My horrible habit is this. If I'm wearing khaki of any color, it's a disaster because all I have to do is sit down to eat a meal. If I'm wearing khaki and food gets on me, salad dressing, you know, you know, piece of food, you know, and and then it inevitably leaves a stain. I almost feel like entirely giving up on the color khaki, you know, it's like I feel like blue, you can hide a number of eating sins, right? You know, just this morning one of my children was sitting at the breakfast table and he had the spatula for the pancakes, which by the way I made, my kids were really impressed with me today. And and, and as he flipped the spatula over, tumbled out of his hands, and onto his khaki pants. And I was like, Oh son, I I I totally get it. You know, I was at General Assembly this past week and I'm wearing khaki because we had to have the evening worship service to start the assembly. And I get out there and uh, I I go to dinner and I think I've got my freshly pressed khaki slacks and I'm ready to go. And as I sat down in the worship service after the evening meal, I looked down two spots and I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I only brought one pair of slacks. How am I supposed to make these stretch? That's being filthy, kind of. At least for me. I don't want spots on anything. I've been filthy before. I was working out in the garage yesterday. And, uh, you know, my wife was like, it is really hot out here. And I was like, actually, no, it's not that bad. It's only 78 degrees. It's 92% humidity, but, you know, hey. You know, so I was just sweating. It was just, just, I was just a wreck. And my wife said, uh, we got to go to Costco. I'm like, all right, I've got to get cleaned up. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm filthy. That's being filthy. You know, I didn't mind yesterday going filthy into the Lowe's to pick up some screws that I needed. It's like they can just live with it. No big deal. I don't care if I stink. The, uh, Joshua was not filthy. That's what the English text says, but the Hebrew behind it is a lot more specific. The same term for filthy appears in God's instructions to the Israelites to bury their excrement, to bury their waste. The ESV in the Book of Isaiah renders the term as vomit, and in Isaiah chapter thirty-six, verse twelve, it renders the term as dung. Isaiah, or sorry, Joshua is not merely filthy. It's not that he's sweaty. It's not that he's got a couple of stains on him. He's covered in human waste, which according to Old Testament Levitical law is about as unceremonially clean as you can be. And ultimately, this excrement stained garment that he is wearing is symbolic of his sin and of his defilement. You know, we might think that, well, I can get dressed up and I can get all gussied up and I can put on my Sunday finest, and we think, look at me, I'm clean, I'm presentable. But yet, apart from Christ, when God looks upon us, it's as if we are dressed in human waste, stained garments. I think there's another factor here that's most likely at play is that I can't can't help but think that the, the scenario is, is that Joshua is so fearful that he has soiled himself? I read a book uh, a number uh, about a year ago or so on the physiology, the physiology and the psychology of combat, and it, it talks about the ways in which the human body responds. to to combat, to life-threatening situations. And what they said is in World War II, they did a study, and in this study it said that uh, of the surveyed soldiers, they said nearly half of the soldiers lost control of their bowels in combat. One of the most common experiences. And they say that this is an important psychological factor because they said it's just an automatic function that the body does when you're in, in, engrossed in, in tremendous fear. They think that the other half that said that they didn't experience such, such an event were lying, <laughs> which is kind of funny when you think about it. In other words, you can be scared so, so badly that you, your body just reacts that way. I think Joshua stands in the presence of the Lord in these excrement stained uh, clothing and these garments in part because he is trembling because he is stained with sin and he is in the presence of an all-holy God who cannot bear to look upon sin. And he sees the accuser and he knows that the accuser is going to level a charge against him, that he is guilty, that he's covered in sin. And Joshua knows that it's true. There's nowhere to hide, nowhere to run, no excuse that you could possibly make. It's not like me where I just got a a spot or two on my slacks. It's not just simply being sweaty and filthy. It's being stained head to toe with sin. And as one who would be knowledgeable of the Old Testament Levitical laws he would know that in order to appear in the presence of God in the holy of holies according to Leviticus 6 that 16 that he's got to be absolutely pure and clean he was supposed to bathe he was supposed to put on himself a fresh linen coat fresh undergarments he was supposed to tie a sash around his waist place the the, the linen turban on his head He was essentially supposed to be absolutely spotless. He would undoubtedly also know what would happen to those who went into the presence of the Lord unprepared. Think of Nadab and Abihu from Leviticus chapter 10, where they were appropriately dressed. They had clean bodies, clean undergarments, clean vestments, clean turban, and they brought unauthorized fire into the presence of the Lord and the Lord struck them down. How often do we carry about the burden and the guilt of sin? How often do we look in the mirror and we can't look ourselves in the eye Because we know the sin that we're guilty of. No matter how much we may bathe, no matter how much we may say, let me just try to sleep it off, let me just try to ignore it. It's a guilt and it's a shame that wakes you up in the middle of the night and it keeps you going around and around and around to where you realize you are stained with sin. then the lord sorry then he showed me joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the lord and satan standing at his right hand to accuse him it's terrifying but what about the gift which brings us to our third and final point as the accuser stands by ready to level the charge and as as god is there in his holiness and his purity. We read in verse 2, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? The Lord shone the light of his rebuke upon the dark words of the accuser and Dispel them. The Lord's words, you could say, were the outpouring of cool water upon the impending flames of his own righteous judgment. The Lord does not dispute with what the accuser would say. He doesn't say, you know what, he's actually not as sinful as you might claim. But nevertheless, the Lord rebukes him and he invokes the name of the Lord to do so. How is this possible? How can the Lord rebuke in the name of the Lord? How is it possible that he can rebuke Satan even though Joshua stands in his presence, stained in these clothing, in his clothing and in these garments? Well, the imagery is vague, but I think the rest of the light of scripture tells us the clear picture is that God himself is Joshua's advocate. Yes, the Lord sits upon his throne. He is the judge. Yes, the accuser is there. Satan is there. He's the prosecuting attorney. But who is our defense attorney? No one less than the Lord himself. And as we would look at and see from the rest of Scripture, and as the prophet here speaks of the presence of the angel of the Lord, it is... The Lord Jesus Christ, who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who is our defense attorney, and who is Joshua's defense attorney. And the Lord Jesus rebukes Satan, and he invokes two important points. He says, first of all, that the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. In other words... As the people are returning to the land, Joshua, as the high priest, stands as the representative for Jerusalem. And he says to Satan, the accuser, that Joshua is the representative of Jerusalem and that he has been chosen by God. In spite of Israel's defilement, in spite of their sin, God will show them mercy. But secondly, and amazingly, The Lord has plucked Israel, represented by Joshua, from the fire of his judgment and his condemnation. And he says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Is this not a brand that has been plucked from the fire? In other words, he is not subject to my judgment. He's not subject to my wrath. I have plucked him from the fire. But Jesus doesn't merely write off Joshua's defiled state. One of the things that uh, I, I had to deal with at the, the General Assembly this past week um, was we had, a, we had a record number of 13 appeals and complaints before the assembly. By some miracle, we actually ended early. I have no idea how that happened. I thought we would not finish all of our business. But one of the regular drumbeats that you heard in the assembly was not dismissing a charge or a complaint on a technicality. In other words, that we would so vigorously follow the rules that we would uh, erroneously dismiss a substantive concern on a mere technicality. That's something that happens in our own civil courts and criminal courts all the time. Oh, they didn't read them as Miranda rights. We we can throw this out. Oh, the the search warrant was illegitimately uh, uh, obtained. That means that everything that came from that search warrant is now thrown out of evidence. Where substantive issues are thrown out on technicalities. That's not the way the General Assembly wanted to work. They said if there's something substantive here, we need to deal with it. And so Jesus does not dismiss Joshua's sinful condition on some kind of technicality. Instead, he gives Joshua a gift. And the Lord's words set off a chain reaction. The angels directed those standing near Joshua to remove his excrement-stained garments. But notice he says in verse uh, 4 of chapter 3, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. In other words, when he removes the, the stained garments, that is the forgiveness of his sins. I'm taking away your guilt. I'm taking away your shame. I suspect that this must have been such a tremendous relief to Zachariah, knowing that Joshua's stained garments were now removed. In other words, that the sins of the people are taken away. You know, imagine if you stand guilty in a court of law, and the judge all of a sudden says, you're innocent. The charges no longer stand against you. What a sense of relief that must be. But what happens next, I think is even all the more amazing, is that the Lord told Joshua that he would receive pure garments. He says again in verse 4, I will clothe you with pure vestments. In other words, he removes the sin-stained garments and he gives him holy clothing if his sin-stained garments are sorry if his stained garments were symbolic of his sin then the converse is true that the pure garments are uh, representative of righteousness In the thought world of the temple, the priestly garments were made of the same material as the tabernacle and were a constant reminder for uh, the need for holiness, the need for righteousness. We hear the prophet Isaiah uh, reflect upon this whole imagery of the garments. When we read in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. In other words, what Isaiah says is that when God gives unto us this robe of righteousness, we are beautiful, we are holy, we are like a bride ready for her wedding day. In other words, the sin is gone, and it's not merely that we are innocent, but rather that we are positively righteous. There's a huge difference between being not guilty versus being righteous. To be not guilty means that you're simply not guilty of the crime. It doesn't mean that you're holy, it doesn't mean that you're righteous, it just means that you're innocent. To be righteous, means that you're in perfect conformity to the law. When God looks upon you as you stand before his throne of judgment, he sees a perfect keeping of the law. Every single jot and tittle. Not a partial righteousness, but a whole righteousness. When the uh, Heidelberg Catechism in question 60, which I think has to be one of my favorite, maybe the second favorite question right behind number one, When it asks in question 60, how are you righteous before God? It says, he grants the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never committed any sin and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. This means that Joshua, the high priest, can now stand Perfectly holy and righteous in God's presence, fearless, filled with peace, filled with joy because he's clothed in the righteous robes, not of his own making, but of the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. And what I find amazing in this is that, uh, that Zechariah gets so excited when he sees Joshua being clothed in the robes of righteousness. Uh, he says in verse 5, And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. In other words, he's so excited, he's like, give him a turban. Finish, finish the priestly garments. What Zechariah speaks of here is that for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, who trust in his obedience and suffering, who trust in his work, that God freely gives us his son's robe of righteousness. In technical terms, God imputes to us Christ's perfect law-keeping and his suffering and his holiness so that we can boldly stand in his presence. Do you think that though you may be physically close to God because you are near his people, you are reading his word and and you are praying that, that you are still far away from him? You have an advocate with the Father who is righteous. You have a defense attorney who speaks on your behalf and who says to God in the holy tribunal, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Do you feel as if you carry about the burden and the weight and the guilt of your sin and your shame, and that sometimes you feel that you are incapable of even looking yourself in the eye because of you're ashamed of how you have conducted yourself, how you have sinned? You have an advocate with the Father, a defense attorney, who not only speaks on your behalf, but has given you his perfect robe of righteousness to wear. He has taken away your guilt. He has taken away your sin-stained clothing and given you his perfect robe of righteousness to wear so that you can be unburdened from your guilt, unburdened from your shame. You can cast it off and you can stand boldly with joy in the presence of God. We are all, because of God's mercy in Christ, brands plucked from the fire. And not only are we plucked from the fire, we, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have not the slightest hint of smoke about us because of the perfect robe of Christ's righteousness. So beloved in Christ, rejoice in the gift that we receive through Christ take shelter in his robe of righteousness and give thanks that in the face of the true accusations of the accuser that we have an advocate that stands in the holy presence of God and who not only defends us, not only who speaks on our behalf, but who has suffered and died for us and who has fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law on our behalf and who gives us that suffering in obedience by imputing it to us and by clothing us in his robe of righteousness. What a tremendous blessing and what a tremendous joy. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, Father God, were it up to us to try to seek to stand in your presence, we would all be lost. For no flesh can stand in your presence and be justified for we have all sinned and fall short of your glory there is not one of us who loves you there's not one of us who is righteous no not one and yet in your infinite mercy and grace you have poured out your love through the perfect work of your son who has not only paid the debt that we owe for violating your law, but who has also fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law on our behalf, so that by faith alone, by your grace alone, we receive not only the removal of our sin-stained garments, not only the forgiveness of our sins, but we receive the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You clothe us splendorously you grant unto us garments of holiness and righteousness and perfection so that when you look upon us you do not see our sin you do not see our imperfection you do not see our rebelliousness but that you only see the perfect righteousness and holiness of your son the Lord Jesus Christ we pray Lord that we would always seek shelter beneath his mighty wings that we would always seek peace through his work, his suffering, that we would seek the forgiveness of our sins solely through him, and that in the end you would impart unto us peace and joy and fill our hearts with thanksgiving, praise, and worship for you, our triune God. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.